You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 18 of a new series about the Krupp Steel family. This is Krupp Steel Part 1, Friedrich Karl and Alfred Krupp, or Primitive Accumulation. Today I'm recording from the Old Synagogue in Essen, Germany. This episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. Hitler loved to use the phrase, swift as greyhounds, tough as leather, and hard as Krupp steel. The phrase appears in Mein Kampf, and Hitler used it frequently throughout his political life. In some ways, Krupp steel was one of the key elements of Germanness, like Wagner, forests, the Alps, beer, and so on. In 1929, when Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party were on the steady rise to power, he visited Essen, Germany, in the Ruhr Valley. Hitler thought it would be good propaganda to visit the famous main Krupp arms factory. When he got there, Hitler and his posse found that a sign blocked the road. The sign read, it is requested that, to prevent misunderstanding, no application be made to visit the works, since such application cannot be granted under any circumstances whatsoever. Hitler got shunned, and more importantly, Krupp didn't want Hitler to see evidence of rearmament and then, and then refer to it in his speeches and or use it for his own political gain. They did let Hitler tour a Krupp museum instead. William Manchester wrote, Even there, Hitler displayed a sense of theater. Recognizing the political value of any association with Krupp, he had signed the exhibit register with a flourish and underscored his signature, as though he knew that the Krupp destiny would be inextricably entangled with his own. The name was still there, slashed across the guestbook like a jagged prophecy, Adolf Hitler. The Krupps would have no idea that within 14 years, Hitler and the Nazis would loot almost all of Europe and make Alfred Krupp the greatest industrialist in the world, at least for the time. Manchester says, Before the Nazi tide ebbed, Alfred ruled an economic colossus sprawling across 12 nations, from the Ukraine to the Atlantic, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean. He owned factories everywhere, a complex of shipyards in the Netherlands, ore mines in Greece, Russia, France, Norway, and Yugoslavia. Alfred Krupp and the Nazis stole it all, and then they used slave labor to run these factories, famously including a slave labor camp at Auschwitz. When it all came crashing down, Krupp found himself a convicted war criminal. Yet only a few years later, he was back in charge of a company even larger than at pre-war levels. Then it all came crashing down again. It's a wild story, and one that can teach us all kinds of lessons about the things that Program to Chill is all about. Namely, business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica. Let's get into it. It's time to introduce the Krupp family. And, I know, it's Krupp, 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 not Krupp, but I'm an American, I find it hard to pronounce the name correctly, so I'm going to say Krupp. We're going to talk about some prehistory for the Krupp family, then we're going to introduce the first Krupp that is relevant to our story. Now, there are 
Much older references to Krupp's that may or may not be them, but the first time the Krupp family officially shows up is 1587, when a man named Arndt Krupp wrote his name in the Essen Register of Merchants. Essen back then was part of the Hanseatic League, which gave the merchant class a lot of opportunities to prosper. So, Arndt Krupp was a merchant in the 16th century, and being a merchant in the 16th century meant being a glutton. The sign of prosperity was being fat, and German merchants back then would have seven-hour meals, spending half their waking hours eating or defecating. Because, honestly, what else was there back then than to cook and eat? I mean, literally, there, there really wasn't that much to do, and most people weren't even literate. Now, I love reading about history, because absolutely everything sounds horrifying until like 40 years ago. For instance, in the 16th century, Essen was still plagued by wolves. And I'm talking like, I'm talking like the wolves were attacking the town and eating people in the city center. There was an ongoing bounty to kill wolves in the town. On top of that, there was no sanitation to speak of. And people would just toss their waste right out the windows into the street. No plumbing whatsoever. Along those lines, there was an ongoing ambient level of just plagues and epidemics breaking out pretty much all the time. And of course, everybody died by like, an old man was a 60-year-old man, right? So, so along those lines, the Black Plague swept through Essen as it swept through all of Europe and much of the rest of the world. Essen was hit very hard by the Black Plague, and when it came through, houses were quarantined and half the town became bandits. There were dead carts, like in the stupid Monty Python movie, Bring Out Your Dead. The dead carts piled high with bodies and mass graves. People drank to excess to escape the horror. Eventually the town just stopped collecting bodies, and the entire town just reeked of death. Whole parts of the town were completely depopulated, and a panic set in, and a lot of people sold their property and went on a final hedonistic pleasure binge. Not Arndt Krupp, though. Arndt bet on his survival and bought out half the town, thereby winning himself extensive gardens and pastures that the family would still own four centuries later. In Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, Marx wrote about a concept that he called primitive accumulation, and he defined it as an accumulation not of the result of the capitalistic mode of production, but its starting point. And he compared it loosely to the concept of original sin. Later thinkers have suggested that the concept is analogous to various types of original sins like the enclosures of Great Britain and analogous seizures of land in Europe as well as the ongoing colonization and genocide of the Native Americans here in North America, as well as the use of chattel slavery to accumulate wealth. Now, I am not a systematizer, and I don't think the concept should be codified into stone or anything, but I do think that this concept can be useful in looking at intergenerational familial wealth. Now, we've talked about how behind every great fortune lies a crime. And the original source of the Krupp family wealth was this profiteering from the Black Plague. Although every subsequent Krupp would do their best to add 
to the list of crimes. Now, if the Black Plague weren't enough, then the Thirty Years' War swept over Europe, where armies of Danes, Swedes, Spaniards, Frenchmen, and Bohemians, and yes, nation-states didn't exist yet, but basically armies from these different regions would just sweep across the countryside, raping, pillaging, plundering, and murdering everyone in sight. Now, the Thirty Years' War was so bad that there are pretty credible reports of widespread cannibalism in certain areas. Essen lay right in the middle of these battlefields. The Krupp family survived the Thirty Years' War unharmed, perhaps because they had started dealing in arms at the time. Anton Krupp, one of Arndt's sons, married one of the local gunsmiths and became a gunsmith himself. So there you have it, the Krupps got into weaponry over 300 years before Stalingrad. With their wealth, the Krupps bought into local mills and mines and generally prospered for several generations. That brings us to the first Krupp that's really relevant to our story, Friedrich Karl Krupp, who I will generally call Friedrich Krupp the first, when I have to differentiate between them, because, as you'll see, they loved to name each generation Friedrich, then Alfred, then Friedrich, then Alfred, and so on. This is unwieldy and annoying to keep track of, but we'll get through it, partially because we don't need to refer that often to each generation, and partially because there's only so many that we're talking about. And trust me, it sounds awful, but it will be worth it. So Friedrich Krupp was born in 1787 and died in 1826. Friedrich Krupp is held up as the modern founder of the Krupp Enterprise. For reference here, Friedrich was the great-grandson of Arndt's great-grandson. So we are leapfrogging hundreds of years here. So Friedrich's grandmother had purchased the town's ironworks, perhaps more properly called a forge back then, because this is in the year 1800. The forge was profitable when they acquired it, and it produced kitchenware, stoves, weights, and it had a subsidy from Berlin to make cannonballs for Prussia. Now that's notable because that is the first instance of something that will become very familiar for the Krupp family, which is to say government contracts and subsidies, which are the true source of Krupp wealth. Now, in this period, which is to say the Napoleonic era, Every iron maker in Europe wanted to crack the secret of how to make cast steel. Cast steel was basically the atomic bomb of the era, the highest military technology that existed, and the only people who knew how to make it were the English. Not only that, but the English had known and kept it a secret for 70 years, because it was discovered in 1740 by a clockmaker in Sheffield. As a side note, ancient India and China had both developed steel and made advances towards cast steel, but of course in much smaller quantities. England was studying Indian steel very early on, although I'm not sure if it had a direct impact on their steel industry. It would be fascinating to look into that and see if they got ancient technologies and integrated them or not. I'm just not well equipped to go into that myself. But the finest steel in the world at this time was made in England. It was called English steel. 
and anyone who wanted the best cutlery or watch materials or machine parts was ordering them from Sheffield. So after the British victory at Trafalgar and their subsequent blockades, Europe was cut off from importing English steel. Napoleon offered a prize of 4,000 francs to the first steel maker anywhere who could match the British process. The race was on all across Europe to figure it out, and Friedrich Krupp was obsessed with finding the secret. The Krupp family eventually became synonymous with the German state, but in this era, and this is very interesting, Germany of course didn't exist as a political entity, and so Friedrich Krupp was a devoted fan of Napoleon, which is pretty ironic. So, several metallurgical concerns tried to claim that they discovered how to make cast steel. Everybody wanted Napoleon's reward. The Krupp family and corporation today assert that only Friedrich was successful. It is not at all clear that he was the first to discover the secret. What is clear is that Friedrich Krupp nearly bankrupted his own family trying to figure it out. Like, this is not metaphorical. Under Friedrich's direction, the forge ran through like $40,000, which was a fantastical sum back then. So, Friedrich Krupp did eventually make steel by 1816, but it wasn't cast steel. And the steel he did make was only useful to sell to tanners as files for their tools. And even if he had mastered cast steel, he didn't know how to make it at scale yet. But Friedrich could tell that the future was in making steel alloys with copper. Knowing where the industry was going, he tried to expand his foundry. To get the funds to expand his foundry, he borrowed from a guy that was called the Jew Moses. Now, expanding was a poor choice because they were stuck using a water wheel that didn't have water half of the time because of the cost of expansion and the water wheel and losing all that money trying to figure out how to make cast steel. Friedrich ran out of money and had to relinquish the foundry to his biggest creditors, which luckily for the family, I suppose, was Friedrich's father-in-law. Facing financial ruin, Friedrich had to move his family into a much smaller house, basically a shed. Completely defeated, Friedrich decided to go to bed, and he went to lay in his bed, completely silent for two straight years, just staring at the ceiling, brooding over his defeat. Which I mean, relatable. Finally, in 1826, Friedrich turned over in his bed and just died. He was only 39 years old. The doctors say that he died of pectoral dropsy. So, Friedrich Krupp ran his successful foundry into the ground. But if you look on Wikipedia today, it reads, In 1810, he founded a small forging plant near Essen, and in 1815, he formed a partnership with Friedrich Nikolai for the production of cast steel. Then, ambiguously, the rest of the article makes it sound like they were producing cast steel, which they were not. They say history is written by the victors, but after a certain point, history is written by the only people who still remember and still care, like the Krupp family. Still, this defeat forms a major part of the Krupp family mythos, because 
one of the pallbearers for Friedrich Krupp was his eldest son, Alfred Krupp, who was just 14 years old. Alfred Krupp buried his father and went right back the same day, immediately, back to the foundry to keep working. William Manchester writes, In the florid lore of 19th century capitalism, there are few episodes more dramatic than Alfred Krupp's arrival on the floor of the works that afternoon. All the ingredients of high theater are there. The grieving widow, the helpless younger children, the fresh-faced stripling springing to the defense of the family honor. To Germans, it is irresistible. So is the temptation to wallow in schmaltz, and after the hero had become a national figure, his tale was gilded and embossed, until he appeared as a compost of Horatio at the bridge, come Siegfried dispatching the dragon. It is impossible to exaggerate the impact of this legend on the German people. For the better part of a century, the Reich's schoolchildren were taught to look back in admiration on young Alfred's feet, marveling at the gallant youth who had coaxed strange fires from the cold jaws of the foundry. Also, speaking on a personal level, this Alfred Krupp, 1812-1887, also known as Alfred Krupp I, also known as the Cannon King, probably has the best claim to being self-made. Questionable, but still the best claim, probably. And he was competent at his craft. Also, in terms of violence and or crimes and or sins, Alfred might be the least criminal of the modern Krupps as well. He is definitely the funniest bundle of weird neuroses and to my mind anyway, perhaps the most sympathetic, although he's not that sympathetic. Alfred Krupp was something closer to a mad genius. He was definitely a crank. His whole life he was rail thin, terrified of fire, which is hilarious considering that he inherited a forge, a foundry, and Alfred Krupp was obsessed with smells. He thought some smells were evil, and some were lucky. Alfred Krupp thought horse manure was a uniquely enriching smell, that it was inspiring, and that it made him creative. He was an insomniac and a hypochondriac, but in ways that probably made him more productive, actually, and he was a compulsive writer. The Krupp family archives have 30,000 of his letters and notes, for example. I'm not sure I've even written 30,000 emails, come to think of it. Alfred Krupp has described his childhood as one of misery and sorrow, which I don't see any reason to doubt him on that. Then, at age 14, in 1826, he took over the operations of the family foundry, like we were saying. Later on, he would write about this period of his life, saying that he fixated on the growing danger of total ruin, and my endurance, suffering, and hard labor to avert the calamity. He would write about lying sprawled out, gray with fatigue, in the attic, in fear and trembling anxiety, with little hope for the future, during hundreds of sleepless nights. Now, to be sure, it is a huge Heavy burden. Let's not forget reality here. 
he inherited a formerly successful foundry from his family. His family were still his main creditors. He did have the time and opportunity to learn to run the business and to fail for several years. Alfred Krupp's mother chose to ignore her husband's failures and, and wrote, The business will not be hampered in any way, for my husband took the precaution of instructing my oldest son in the secret formula for the preparation of cast steel. Now I note here that this was not true. Her husband did not teach Alfred Krupp how to make cast steel. Basically, his mom more or less pretended, to creditors no less, that Alfred Krupp knew how to make cast steel. And they went on writing contracts to sell cast steel that they had no way of fulfilling. And they didn't fulfill the contracts, of which there are records showing them not fulfilling these contracts, right? They just didn't deliver any cast steel for years and years. They lost money for four straight years. Then, the impossible happened in 1830. And we can rely on Alfred Krupp's own words to describe it. I have just succeeded in the most important invention of a completely weldable crucible steel. He went around and showed his family, and they basically just poured a bunch of capital into the foundry. And Alfred started churning out small batches of flawless steel. Basically, Alfred Krupp had suddenly succeeded in figuring out what his father could not figure out. And, as a side note, this is proof that his father didn't figure out the secret of cast steel, because there's a four-year gap where they just completely lost money because his son didn't know how to do it. So all of this was taking place at an auspicious time in Prussia. Since 1819, they were expanding the Zollverein, which was the German customs union. Basically, it was making one big common market. This was a preliminary step towards a unified Germany. And this step obviously benefited business and trade because it removed all intra-union tariffs between different regions. All of that was abolished. Basically, it was bringing 30 million Germans into one economic block. Alfred Krupp, learning from his mother, I suppose, would consistently lie about the quality of his steel with every person he would interact with, for all the way from customers to friends to competitors. Even though the quality of his steel and the amount in which he could make it would steadily climb. Basically, they practiced fake it till you make it, but for heavy industry. Now, I don't think industrial espionage gets talked about enough. We got into it a little bit with William Stevenson, but it's a huge topic and it's understudied in my opinion. And of course, it's one of the main types of espionage. And I think it only ever really gets brought up regularly when like, like neocons or increasingly just liberals to talk about China or something. I'm not an expert on industrial espionage, but the topic fascinates me. Now, would it surprise you that Alfred Krupp tried to engage in a little industrial espionage? And of course, this is completely unmentioned in his Wikipedia page, but Alfred Krupp sucked so badly at industrial espionage that it's almost charming. So in 1838, after he got his foundry on good footing and it was finally making money, 
he took a trip to Great Britain. He didn't want to see London or the charms of the English countryside. No, he went more or less directly to, to the Midlands, to Sheffield specifically, which was the holy site for steelmakers all over the world. And at this point, it was perhaps the vanguard of the Industrial Revolution. So this is great. Alfred Krupp got a fake passport made out to, quote, A. Krupp. Krupp spelled C-R-U-P, which, which he thought would sound more English. Then he put on a disguise and headed out to visit the foundries. He wrote, Only yesterday I saw, without any introduction, a new rolling mill for copper plates, which has only been working for a short time and where no one is admitted. I was properly booted and spurred, and the proprietor was flattered that a couple of such good fellows should dine to inspect his works. Around this same time, a different German steelmaker had visited Sheffield without any disguises, went to the foundries, introduced himself, and was invited to tour all of the mills free of charge from 10 in the morning till 10 at night. So you see, there was really no need to be sneaky. Now, even better here, Alfred Krupp didn't speak English, so his efforts at spying were incredibly conspicuous. Let this be a program-to-chill, industrial espionage tip of the day. If you're going to engage in industrial espionage, you probably want to speak the language of the people you're stealing from. Or, more accurately, you probably just want to contract it out. In other words, Alfred Krupp, successful steelmaker, was a terrible spy who wasted his time in Great Britain. At least, he wasted his time trying to do industrial espionage. He fell in love with England and became a devoted, lifelong Anglophile. Which, I mean, I didn't need excuses to hate him before, but devoted, lifelong Anglophile is just disgusting to me. Alfred Krupp wrote that he hated Englishmen until I went to England and there found such good, genuine men and women. Now, while in England, Alfred's hypochondria flared up. He had throat aches, headaches, excessive mucus, asthma, lumbago, and weird discharges. Then he was twitchy, then he was gassy, then he was constipated. And then he got weird rashes and dizziness. He exhaustively catalogs them in his journals. On his birthday, he wrote, I celebrate my birthday in my own way. Last year with cough medicine, this year with enemas. As you might imagine, some people just like being sick. Before Alfred went back to Essen, he visited Paris, and happened to be there to witness the July Revolution of 1830. Alfred Krupp had no idea what was going on, and he wrote in his journal that he had no time for reading, politics, and that sort of thing. Which is the most Alfred Krupp thing I can think of. Now, at this stage of his life, Alfred Krupp was basically apolitical. And, parenthetically, I just love the idea of being there on site to witness such an interesting historical moment like the July Revolution of 1830 and just being like, I don't know what's happening. I don't really care. It's hilarious. So, 
At this stage of his life, Alfred Krupp was making a good profit producing good quality steel and selling it all over Europe. He had developed a great head for running a foundry and a pretty good business sense as well. But he was ironically very terrible at wheeling and dealing, making deals, terrible at all of that side of the business. One major failure came early in dealing with the Austrians, who, to be fair, apparently everyone back then kind of hated dealing with the Austrian government from what I, from what I have been able to gather. Napoleon observed that the Austrians are always late with their payments, with their armies, and in their policies. So Alfred Krupp won a contract to make a new rolling mill for the Vienna Mint, which he delivered, but basically immediately the Austrian government refused to pony up the cash. So Alfred Krupp spent two years at the Austrian court, groveling and begging, but notably not bribing anyone, and he never did get paid. The whole incident cost him $75,000, and it nearly ruined him. Along these lines, bribery of public officials was more or less, was more or less an official business practice in this era, but he would refuse to participate in it, and it probably cost him the entire sum. And he never seemed to have learned his lesson either. Now, in this period, they had to take sleeping business partners in order to survive, and they just got by on their cutlery business mainly. Then, the revolutions of 1848 swept all over Europe, and Alfred Krupp wrote, we must face the possibility of the working classes proceeding to smash up machinery. They thought, and by no means was this exclusively a Krupp phenomenon, they thought that there was a serious possibility that they might lose their factories. This period also saw one of the other great incidents of the Krupp mythos. That the Krupp workers, called Kruppiana, these Krupp workers helped Alfred put down social unrest. And in response, he melted down his family's silverware in order to make payroll. This mutual devotion would only grow in the years to come. Also around the same time, the Krupps developed machines to make rolled and stamped cutlery. This allowed them to make large numbers of cheap, consistent cutlery very quickly. Around the same time, they were also able to start making railroad castings that would be the source of their initial giant fortune. And in 1844, they made something that would lay the foundation for the true source of the Krupp wealth. Two hollow forged, cold drawn musket barrels. More on all of this to come. So what can we learn from today? Well, for one thing, we know that even in the 16th century, Europe was still a terrifying, awful, horrifying place to live. Then we talked about primitive accumulation, which generally the story goes something like someone's great-great-grandfather stole a massive amount of money or land that is like literally always the backstory to some intergenerational familial wealth. Now, whether or not you acknowledge the original sin, there's always an original sin, like without fail. And for the Krupps, 
You might say it was buying out everyone during the Black Plague. Then we saw how the greater Krupp family was able to keep these family businesses going through decades of failure until they were finally able to make a profit. If you look at what kept the Krupp foundry afloat, apart from the extensive lines of credit from their own family, it was contracts with the government. In today's episode, it was forging cannonballs for the Prussian army. But this theme will become much more obvious in future episodes. Then we saw how Alfred Krupp was a very weird bird, full of all kinds of neuroses and untreated mental illness. So far, I think we've only really seen the hypochondria, but there's so much more. Like, like so much more. At first, I was thinking of, like, Howard Hughes, who we will definitely one day do some episodes on. And there are a couple parallels to Howard Hughes, but of course they're quite different, both in the eras that they were working in, of course, and also just the specifics of their neuroses aren't really the same. But I am thinking it. Then we saw how Alfred Krupp would have engaged in industrial espionage were he good enough to carry it out, which he wasn't. He also didn't really understand politics or bribery or wheeling and dealing. All he seemed to be good at was steel making and making his business profitable. And like I said, this is why he probably has the best claim on being self-made. And even that, that's even that's with quotation marks because of course his family owned the foundry and they basically financed it through several very lean years of not profitability, right? Now, as this story progresses, we are going to see that the true wealth comes from his descendants who do understand politics and bribery. But that's for future episodes. Also, I should say, now I know this isn't the most compelling episode, dear listener, mainly because it's kind of irrelevant, like, Talking about 16th century Europe is not totally what I wanted Program to Chill to be about. But I promise you, this story gets so much more insane than you could possibly imagine. Just buckle up, because we have got quite the ride ahead of us. Here's a little teaser for you. Within two episodes, we are entering back into Jeffrey Epstein territory. Just stick with me, folks. I promise you it'll be pretty interesting. Now, for sources today, I used just a little bit of the book Who Financed Hitler, but I used a lot of William Manchester's magisterial volume, The Arms of Krupp. To a lesser extent, I used the book The House of Krupp and the book Blood and Steel. As always, thank you for listening. And just tell a friend. That's all I really want for you to sit your friend down and say, listen, there's a podcast you need to listen to. Just don't make it weird. Just send them the link and say, check it out. Now, I need to be on my way. I'm heading off to the world's most expensive Airbnb via Huegel. See you next week, and God bless. Durch Deutschland geht ein tiefer Riss, der spaltet die Nation. Ne Neuheit ist das nicht gewiss, doch von Interesse schon. Das Beispiel Krupp und Krause klärt den wirklichen Verlauf. Der deutschen Spaltung zugehört als Klassenfrage auf. <lacht>
Für 